0: I'm assuming you're still active, right? So what what are you, you know, bite-sized looking for? What sort of opportunities? If an ASX company is listening to this, how do they know if they're the right fit to have
1: you as a cornerstone investor right now?
2: And we'll clip the ticket too. Huh? <laughs>
1: <laughs> We'd love to be in copper. Um, we feel that we're sort of incomplete on the energy transition spectrum, if we're not in copper. The problem we have with copper is obviously projects are much bigger, Um, so the kind of tickets that we do, 75 to 100 million, doesn't get us necessarily what we got into gold.
0: I can think of one that and it might be a bit reminiscent there's a bite-sized stake you could take in a copper company called AIC Mines and it's run by Aaron Colleran, who was doing the deal and and LaVuncha did the deal with Evolution. (laughs) It's a blast from the past you can get copper exposure on the ASX that way, it's full bite (laughs) size. That's right, right.
2: Right, G'day money mine, a special one for this Friday, last day of the financial year and wow mate we thought we'd uh spot it up we're heading way overseas, we've synced up 10am London time, and there's a bit of an Aussie feel to it. We've got the La Mancha team with us. Uh, My good friend, Graeme Crew, and CEO of La Mancha, Kareem
1: Nasser.
3: Thanks a lot for jumping on the show, guys. Really appreciate it. Yeah,
1: Thank you for inviting us, guys.
2: No. I should I should have let you all introduce yourself. It might have been easier <laughs> than me attempting to do it. No. <laughs> Welcome to Money and Mine, lads. Yeah, it's great it's great the way this um
0: this arrangement came up. we found ourselves on the podcast in recent episodes uh, talking about La LaMuncha a couple of times, which um you know the you guys have popped up recently with the big deal uh, with, the, with the Brazilian assets, but we were also uh, talking about some historical context in relation to the, the, the deal with evolution um, back in the day as well. And that came up in a recent episode too, when we were talking about deal structuring with Mr. David Flanagan. So it's, it's great that we're um, on the phone and, and talking today. I hope we get to cover a lot of ground. You're a pretty active fund these days playing in the battery metals space, and we're pretty interested in the way you're thinking about commodities the world of investing mining companies and everything like that um and we're keen to cover a lot of that territory and appreciate um you guys sharing what what it is that you're focused on
3: we'd uh we'd love to get started by hearing a um a bit of history about La Mancha so you've got various incarnations mining company holding company now fund so Karim why don't you sort of take us away on that front
1: yeah sure um If you don't mind, Travis, I'd like to start with the history of the group that we uh, belong to, um, because I think that's really where it starts effectively. So uh, the Soros family is an Egyptian family. Uh, The grandfather, or call it Nagib's father, um, started as a contractor in construction. The company got nationalized twice. So very quickly, they had to move out of Egypt to um, be able to do business because they kind of like build fairly large companies in Egypt two times and two times the government came in and expropriated them. So very early on, most of the business was overseas and very early on, the management of the business was very diversified. Um, I joined the company in 2000 um, in the telecom group. Uh, It was at the time very small. And one of the brothers, Nagib Soares had started this telecom business And by 2010, uh, we were probably the eighth largest telecom business worldwide. Uh, We had control of our operations pretty much everywhere except in Egypt, believe it or not, where we were a partner to France Telecom um, with equal rights, but still junior partner. And in 2011, we agreed to sell that group by merging with a company called Vimplecom, which was implemented in Ukraine and Russia. And by doing this, we became the sixth largest um, telecom business worldwide. And I got to tell you, I joined the business in 2000. We had no idea that we were going to get there. Uh, We're a very small business. We didn't have much capital. Um, But we had a good knack for the industrial operations, for going to countries that were complicated. Um, Very often, it was a, you know. Uh, greenfield plays, where we were breaking ground, introducing telecoms in countries that didn't have telecoms, Mm -hmm. but then really building very strong local teams and building on the industrial success. So we did a lot of deals, we did a lot of corporate finance activities, but none of which would have been possible if there was not very, very solid businesses delivering quarterly, growing, being very profitable and cash flows. So I'd say that it was an entrepreneurial group, but it was all founded on very solid delivery industrially, always. And that DNA um, is an interesting one, because I remember Naguib talking to me about acquiring La Mancha back in 2011, 2012, and asked him, why are you doing this? He said, you know, I think I should have some gold in my portfolio, but you know me, I don't like financial things. I like industrial things. I like building companies. And it seems that there is something interesting there that we could build. So that's when Naguib um, first started looking at gold. At the time, gold was around 1800 bucks. He thought gold could go to 2200 That was in 2011. Um, you know, La Mancha was acquired, taken private. Um, at that point, Graham, I'll leave it to you because you were there and I wasn't there.
2: Yeah, mate, you must yeah. have uh, I- you must have done all right back in the day, Krui. They give you a job again.
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, That's right, Maddie. I'm, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm a bit like you and your crew. I'm, I'm the one that's here learning about this investment side, but um, <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe I bring a little bit of operational experience. So not quite on the levers of the jumbo, mate, but uh, doing my best. Yeah, I, I, and I think, um, I think JD, the the thing that Karim's alluding to there when I mean, I remember the first meeting I had with Nagib was. Was I? I don't want to buy gold for eighteen hundred dollars an ounce and leave it in a bank vault. I'd rather buy it for a thousand dollars an ounce and produce something and grow something. So, um, and and when they came into Lamarche, we were majority owned by Arriva, so we couldn't. It, it was difficult to get decisions. We were a small part of a very large industrial uh, group, and we were a joint venture operation for in Australia. So, fifty-one forty-nine joint venture with, um. Oh Dioro, Avoca, which um this is, this went is on the become, Frogs leg
0: asset specifically. Yeah, Frogs leg, that's right. Yeah, yeah. that's right. E- which trade, is yeah. Gold mining Cal- neckaguly.
4: Yeah. Which which evolution yeah ended up getting vended into evolution. But I'll say the thing that La Mancha did was really made things move, really made things happen. I, I think the I think the transaction uh, when when the Suarez family came in took it private. I think that closed in Maybe July 2012. Yep. By December, we'd broken ground on the Mungari um, construction. So, um, we'd bought out the joint venture partner, um, which was Alasa. By then, bought them out for 160 odd million dollars um, and approved 120 million dollar build of the Mungari plant. So, it really made things happen quickly. And it, from there, it became a you know, a very exciting ride because because things happened. We were building a plant, we we're expanding Frogs League, we were starting up White Foil. Um so 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 what I saw was La Mantra making things happen. And and you're right, Maddie, like I'm I'm back here now and that's that's the exciting thing for me is you know what how we can help um how we can help things happen, how we can catalyze um things through our investments.
0: Korea, run us yep. through what what were the assets of um of La Mancha at that point in time. Obviously, they, they picked up Frog's Leg. You know, they picked up um, you as an individual. That's an important asset to Oh, get, what mate. an what asset. It, that's what a global What globally, are the other ones? Global one in demand, <laughs> that one, the
2: growing well, uh, think –
1: I think you're spot on there because the, the main asset they required was a good team, right? Yeah. Whether in the mines or also, uh, the corporate level, uh, obviously I say yeah. good team because I wasn't there. Uh, I was actually, because I had been in the group for so long, I was watching some of my former colleagues went into the company, which is a typical Naguib thing. When he finds good people, he'll kind of like, um, cross pollinate, um, you know, Across industries, across businesses, and um, and that's why we're also quite keen on working with people we've worked in the past. We can trust. It's um, you know I'm not going to say it's a family business, but there's a there's a family feel in the sense of you kind of check out, come back, um, do other things with your life, come back. So so it's quite interesting. So with your question on the assets, there was obviously Mungari, there was the Hassan Mine in Sudan, of which we had a minority stake in too. And then there was the E.T. mine in Ivory Coast. Um, and in in all cases, we had complicated shareholdings in the mines. So a lot of work was done to clarify, take control of those mines. Uh, we acquired a 10% stake in Hassai, which gave us majority control. It took a long while to convince the Sudanese government to give that, that control that we needed to be able to change things. While La Mancha was a private company from 2012 to 2015, um, effectively gold went from 1800 to about 1100, but we sure. have done a lot with the assets. And I'll come back later when we talk about the cycle and how do we make money through the cycle. It's really at the drill bit. It's really by building stuff. Um, it's industrial.
3: So, man, so you went from
4: industrials
0: that, that, to, to mining. I hope you, I hope in your valuation methodologies, you stop valuing things using a terminal value.
1: <laughs> well, we don't actually because that's the upside, right? That's oh. where you make a great investment. So yeah. you've got to kind of value stuff that you can see. You take the appropriate amount of risk. You also need to see what else could be. But if you really want to make good returns, you've sort of got to – you shouldn't pay too much for that. Right. It's it's a really important thing, which is it it takes a very difficult effort to get the plan working, the plan that, you know, right. Mm. So to bank on the upside beyond that is, you know, it's a secondary thing somehow. Mm. Um, So we can get back to that. But but sort of long story short, maybe to continue with the history. what happened in 2015, I think what really created the catalyst for the company to change was we were going nowhere in Sudan with respect to the ability to finance, um, effectively building on that super large VMS. It needed at the time probably around 400 million of capex, and the Sudanese wouldn't put the penny into it. So eventually, again, it was Naguib at the time. He said, I'm going to make them a proposal. Either they buy us out or I buy them out uh, for the same amount. And uh, it was almost like a shotgun thing. He got, went there, said, "You know, I'm offering to sell it to you, or if you don't want to sell it, sell me your stake." Um, so they decided they wanted to buy it from us. And the big miracle is they paid us. Uh, so all of a sudden, we had two assets on two different continents, um, and we had a hundred million bucks. And the sector had completely collapsed. So we were in an interesting position where we had assets where we enhanced the value of those assets. And then on the other side, we had cash, which was very valuable at the time. And so um, Seb and Vincent Benoit, which is one of our partners today, uh, went on to a kind of search in Australia, and um, I think spoke to a bunch of people, Northern Star Evolution, others. And we kind of clicked with Jake and his team. And uh we eventually um I mean Graham you can add more colour, but we eventually agreed to van the acetone and provide him with cash. And I think that's a decision we never regretted going forward because they did a beautiful job with it. Mm.
4: It
0: was Graham, a really transformational,
1: know, you, you know,
0: deal for, yep. for evolution at the time. But you know, I imagine being on the other side of it a pretty transformational deal too.
1: Yeah. And so once we did that, um, Basically, we only had 80 left, and we did something that not a lot of juniors do, which is harakiri and say, okay, um, we couldn't become that next level intermediate blah 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 that you see on every pitch book. It's actually more interesting for us to um, effectively vend it into somebody that can have a scale effect, that can have a cash flows that will allow us to to actually build the asset, um, and and that's what we did, and uh, we did acquire. stake in Endeavour mining. Um, That's also something we never regretted because it was a fabulous platform, especially that our guys went there uh, with amazing talent and grew the business to where it is today.
3: So you've you've ended each of the assets, the ivory assets into Endeavour obviously and then the Aussie ones into Evolution. What's the sort of thinking? You held both those stakes for quite a while, the Endeavour ones you guys still hold. But the the evolution one has been sold down. What was the sort of thinking? Was that more just on what the the assets are currently sort of valued it, at? Or? Interestingly,
0: on paper, the two companies kind of have similar DNA as well. Like they're very active in
3: MA. Yeah. Multi asset companies, yeah. obviously in different jurisdictions. But yeah. Yeah, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that, Kareem.
1: Yeah, so on that one, it's really an interesting one because I people say they've been very active on MA. It's a little bit like our telecom group. We I mean, uh, it, it's beyond active. We're constantly buying and selling stuff, but but the reality is where we really create value was by taking things we're buying and transforming them, right? So so the value creation is never with the M&A. It's really acquiring things that you can take to another level somehow. And sometimes you need to have a scale effect so that you can do that. I'll I'll give you an example. If you take ET's valuation today in the sum of the part of Endeavor our deal was a very bad deal because we contributed ET, I think, at the 60 million bucks valuation. Um, today, it's probably more like 12, 1.2 billion to 1.5 billion. And, and it's an asset where we still don't see the end of it in terms of my life. Um, so, interestingly, you could think we made a bad deal, but the reality is we would never, ever have been able to bring ET to where it is today if there wasn't a platform Would had cash flows, which enabled us to finance it uh, with debt and non-diluted way, and effectively to have the talents and the people that would stick to the company for a long tenor to build it. So in reality, we think that you need the ecosystem, you need the scale, you need the breadth, you need the de-risking by having multiple assets. You need to be able to sort out your problems um, sort of like under the radar, um, interestingly, I was talking to Jake about it. And if you look at uh, evolution through our tenor as a shareholder, there was always something not going right, right? But there was always a couple of things that were going right so that people could be focused on the things that were right. And nobody had to kill himself to sort out a, a problem uh, which you'd have in a single asset. So I think this, the secret sauce in it was really to get into the platforms. Um, To have the people, to have those mix of cash flows and prospectivity, um, to be able to multiply exploration spend. I think we multiplied exploration spend at Evolution by five uh, after we arrived and Endeavor by three. Um, At a time where people were cutting down on everything because gold was at $1,100. And and I think that was really the thinking behind it. Uh, I can't tell you that it was deliberate thinking, but in hindsight, that's pretty much what we did. And and obviously we keep learning. So, how, how do you guys
3: think about macro? Because you obviously spoke there that the macro environment was working against you the whole time. But your sort of strategy is to take big stakes, sort of twenty to thirty percent stakes, and hold them for quite a period. Does the macro environment matter less in those in those sorts of cases because you're holding for such a such a long period of time?
1: Yeah, I mean, when we're in gold, the assumption was the guy who was invested in us likes gold. But otherwise, why would he do this? Um, I can't predict gold for the life of me. Um, it's such a macro currency. Uh, it's not driven by supply demand. Um, it's it's an interesting portfolio diversifier. I think everybody should have enough gold in his portfolio as a diversifier. Um, but we, as a team, have never really been thinking gold's gonna go up, gold is gonna down. Anyways, we're exposed to gold. so. There, what's really important for us is to have assets that are fairly low cost, married with some upside on more early stage plays or things that we're turning around that will be geared more to the upside, right? But the bulk of the portfolio always has in very low ASIC uh, plays. Evolution had one of the best ASICs in the world. Endeavor has one of the best ASICs in the world. And that's really the shield that we have in terms of having a low beta to gold, because we always can survive the down cycle. Right, so we don't really think about the upside. We mostly think about surviving the down cycle, and then if we can ride it out, presumably our companies can do better than others, expand at those times, and then hit the wave on the upside. Um, In terms of the question as to why did we exit evolution, first of all, you know we sometimes have to return capital to our shareholders. That's the right thing to do, and secondly, there was a sense that. Um we had made a lot of money. Uh, w- w- the returns we've made are, are, are amazing. And um, we're also at a stage where the company didn't need us anymore. Uh, it outgrew us somehow. Um, and effectively we felt that um, more capital was needed on the other side to complete the transformation of Endeavour. And we're not as deep pocketed as people think. Um, we have the resources to do what we want. But we also have to allocate capital. Um, you know, I, I wish we would be able to still be writing evolution. I think they're going to do fantastically well in the coming years. They've had some challenges, but you know, in a couple of years, people look back and say they did the right thing, um, and they fixed what they had to fix. Um, but again, we have to deploy capital. It was the most liquid stock that we had. They didn't really need us. Um, to do whatever they wanted to do going forward. And we had made crazy returns. So I think it was the right time. Um, we're still very good friends with them. We still love that team. Um, I wish I would find stuff to do with them. Um, but for us as a fund, or, or call it as a portfolio company at the time, it was the right decision.
2: Now, Crowe, I want to ask about, I guess, your role in the company at the at the moment being... A lot of experience in Africa and Australia. I guess, are you providing a bit of eyes and ears for potential opportunities down under? Are you still sniffing around this side of the world? Or, yeah, tell us about what you're up to, mate, now in your La Mancha round two.
4: M- mainly by listen- listening to the Money of Mine podcast, Maddie, <laughs> if I'm mate, honest. But, happy uh, to
2: be of service, <laughs> Cobber.
4: <laughs> hey, if we're um, your source of alpha, bloody hell, I got, <laughs> got, got some <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I mean just just back to the point about the macro environment. One of the mantras here is we don't bet on price, you know. So it's it is always about the you know the fundamentals of the business, of the geology, of the operations, and of the team. Uh, so I think that's that's my main role here, Matt. To bring draw that back to your question is you know going in and looking at things whether it's a portfolio company or or a potential investment you know providing that uh, guidance around due diligence around you know operational challenges uh, around opportunities within those operations so um i do keep my eyes and ears out for things but but my role is more around that kind of adding that kind of operational technical um, experience and expertise if you like to you know to support the investment team and, and you know we, and we've got a great team you know it's, it's a small team but we've got some uh some good technical support and some really good um investment managers you know doing the doing the analytical business um, you know, looking at the models etc so um it's just about providing a few gray hairs really if i'm honest
2: what um what about your time in africa mate? like all the time you did working on the shop floor there. Does that when you're in this sort of role is that Pretty valuable experience, looking back on it. Probably more than the Australian side. Oh,
4: I think. I mean, I, I see that all as a as a progression, Matt. That, that it's all about leadership and how you engage with people to you know to build something. And and, and again, that's why I like the La Mancha story because it's always been about you know it's a it's a capital provider and investor, but it's always it's always been about backing a team. Backing an operation, so you know. I, I think you know what my time in Africa does is it, it gives you, you know, a little bit more diversity of you know working with different cultures, understanding different countries, you know, doing government relations in different in different places. You, you know you get a you, you get a wide variety of of experience um, uh, between East and West Africa, but it's um, it, it's really about how you apply. Uh, management and leadership to to build really great businesses
1: matt maybe i can give you a small anecdote about Graham. Um, and and what i see is main added value is um when we bought golden star Graham was a friend of la mancha let's say um and uh we asked him to get on the board and i still remember one of my first maybe my second meeting with Graham. And uh, obviously, we had done the typical diligence. At the time, the team was much smaller. What we did in diligence was a bit different um, and relied a lot on consultants. And um, at the Prestea mine, um, they had implemented Alimac, if you remember, Graham.
4: Yeah, and no, I remember.
1: came back saying, yeah, no problems, they're going to be able to do it. They're hitting the meters. Uh, everything is fine. And then I sit with Graham. Uh, I think it was in Florida, actually, Graham. Yeah. And I asked Graham what he thinks about it. He well, let's see what happens when the trainers from Australia will leave and, and how they're going to hit those meters. And I think if you don't have the operational experience, if you're not a guy that has been on the ground managing people, understanding what you can get of each culture, of each management style, really understanding how a shift organization is gonna have uh, impact on productivity. You can get all the consultants in the world, but you're not gonna be able to really assess whether it works or it doesn't work. Our our biggest problem is not building the excels, it's really putting stuff that's realistic in them and and not kind of um, get bogged into wishful thinking about what you can actually achieve.
2: Cruey, I, uh, I reckon your career just really took off after that podcast you did with me a few years ago, mate. It seemed to 100%. all go great from there. 100%. And, and here again 100%. now, mate, your company's tyres in front of his box. <laughs> oh, mate, just flick, flick us up 50 later, Cruey. No worries. mate. I,
4: I, I will uh, I will return that uh, can of EMU export for you one day. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Guys, I'd like to get into some of your more recent investments. So one of the ones that Trav touched on at the beginning of the show is the investment in ACG, nickel in Brazil. So firstly, how this one's sort of structured, it's not your normal 20 to 30% stake. It was $100 million on a roughly a bit over a billion dollar US deal. What, what's the sort of thinking and why the, the sort of, you know, smaller stake in this one? And the SPAC. We got to talk about the SPAC. Everyone, everyone's excited about SPACs. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So, a couple of things about it. The first one is is we're going to be getting um, is roughly seventeen and change stake, uh, because obviously out of the billion dollars, there's quite a bit of other pieces of capital, such as um, call it project finance and and royalties. Um, so, effectively, overall, the equity is going to be around six hundred million. And out of that, we have a hundred minds. So it's it's giving us about 17%. Um, we do get a board seat. Um, there is another element to it, which is we think there is a bunch of like-minded people around that deal where increasingly what's happening with us is people are considering us as a cornerstone equity provider um, with with a real focus on the equity. Whilst there's other people who will be interested in other things, such as a um, an offtake, a royalty, a straight debt pieces, and they've been asked to provide equity in exchange for getting those bits. So there's increasingly really credible parties coming to La Mancha and saying, we'd we'll like you to be at the capital of this thing with that thing. Um, and I guess on this deal, one of the reasons we're committed to it is we were able to work with other investors um, on a kind of shoulder-to-shoulder basis um, to to look at the deal, look at the technical parameters, exchange a lot with them, not in a lemming approach that we're going because that other guy is going, but there was somebody else that we could kind of spar partner with and and kind of like cross-check what we're findings are and and really trust each other. So that on, eventually- just on those
3: technical details, because this deal... Fell over initially with Savania Stillwater on technical issues. How did you and the team sort of think about that?
4: That was my job, JD. Um, All right, let's let's unpack it. Unback it. <laughs> no, look, I, I think, and it comes back to the same story, right? What we, you know, we went and did due diligence. We went and had a look at the operations. We went and met with the with the teams that are that are running those mines. And I've got to say, overall, we were we were pretty impressed. Um, with the caliber of the people, um, and also, you, you know, Appian have done a good job of of kind of rebuilding up those assets, um, and you know they're extracting good value for them. But they have done a good job of building them up. Um, so they're robust operations, and uh, you know there's there's some life and there's some upside in both of them. So so those are the key things from a risk perspective. You know, you know my job. You know the way I see my job is is partly to to come back to Karim and Banson and say that's never going to work, you know, or this this problem is too big, you, you know, this this problem could bite you on the backside at some point. Um, Sabania highlighted a geotechnical risk, so we did we spent a fair bit amount of time looking at that risk from a from an, a you know how it sits in the whole deal. We even, we used, we did use some consulting from that. We used some in-country geotechnical consultants um, and, and had a good look at it. And there is risk, there is geotechnical risk in that operation. You know, from our point of view, we think it's normal mining risk. You, you, this is not saying that things can't go wrong, but, but, you know, they had an event that they've investigated it, they've put protocols and controls in place and we were able to get ourselves comfortable with that, that particular thing, and, and, and not to say that there's not other, um, there's not other risks, but there's also other opportunities in those operations as well. So that, that's the way we looked at it.
2: What about Brazil and, uh, as a Brazil as a landscape? I think I suppose specifically on the ASX at the moment, you have got. Uh, Centaurus with Jaguar, then God, you got Latin resources that have been flying in the last bit since their resource upgrade. I guess you're obviously a bit bullish on Brazil as a jurisdiction for future mining.
1: Actually, we're not bullish on it. We're comfortable with it. It's a different thing, you know, Uh, meaning we didn't necessarily seek to do the next investment in Brazil uh, because it's in Brazil. It just happened to be in Brazil. But if you think about the landscape, what does uh, Brazil have? It, It has Very good geological endowments in multi-commodities. It has amazing people that are world-class in mining. Um, It's a really established mining jurisdiction in the sense that, yeah, things will go up or down a little bit in terms of um, legislation, but but it's fairly stable. It's a complex jurisdiction, so it's one where permitting is complex. um, Social laws are complex, labor laws are complex, taxes, uh, they're beyond complex. But if you're Brazilian, you live with this every day. It's like saying, is Brazil more complicated for permitting than America is or the United States is? In the US at the moment, you've got to go to 146 agencies if you want to mine permitted, right? So it is-
4: Potentially, yeah.
1: It's mm. all about having the right guys uh, mm. that know how to deal with the system, that have been familiar with the system for a long period of time, which have their heart in the right place, who are not prone to weird practices, if you find those guys and you can build a team around them, then you can do repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat because you're building the social licenses, you're doing the right things, you become a solution provider as opposed to becoming a problem, and you can do great things. But, you know, it's 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 a real mining jurisdiction. I, I think the 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 amount of GDPs that's generated directly or indirectly by ma- mining is 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 quite amazing. There is a real framework in the sense that, yes, it's complicated, but but you know you had bolsonaro, now you had uh, now you have Lula, you had Lula before. If you look at the changes, the real changes that happened despite the discourse that could be extreme on one side or extreme on the other side, there's, there's actually had not been so many changes. There's been mostly positive change in terms of some of the social legislation, some of the legal framework has been improving and has been clarified. And that happened across the administrations. So from our standpoint, it's a real rule of law country and we're pretty comfortable with it. We're not saying we want to just invest in Brazil. It happened that the investment we found were in Brazil. Um, We're looking at investments across the planet at the moment. The one thing I would say, it's also then a portfolio composition. Um, We're up to our ears of uh, West African gold risk. So anything that diversifies that is pretty cool. Um, So what we're doing is basically targeting things that are diversifying us away from that. But if you look at what we're known for, uh, that's one of the tenets. So a lot of pipeline also comes there as well because people know us for it and, and, and will seek us out.
2: What, what's the, um, what is the permitting risk in Brazil? I know every country and jurisdiction has their themes, uh, what the big ticket items are. What are they in Brazil?
1: So let me take a step back. Beyond the legal rules, are you accepted by the community? That's the first thing. Um, Brazil is a legislation which is quite litigious. Um, There's different parties that can instigate litigation in Brazil, and uh, the legal system is fairly slow. So what you really want is to be a guy that's gonna be accepted, because if you're accepted, the chances that people will come after you are fairly low. The second thing is you've got to be a guy that's going to be caring and and doing the right things because if you don't, people will come after you, and then you go back into the issue of uh, how easy it is to block permitting or through the legal processes to bring recourse against you. So so that's the first tenet: you've got to be accepted. That's got to be a project that the local communities, the state, um, will will be happy with, will actually encourage. And and if you have that, you've already do risk a lot. And it's obviously not just in Brazil, Uh, you need that everywhere. But in Brazil, it's particularly easy for somebody to stop you. So so that's the first tenant. The things that are really complicated is uh, obviously TSFs because of all the issues they've had with Valley and other projects. So that's a real. There's a lot of scrutiny around that one. Um, That's why uh, in Araguaia, we're doing dry stacking. there's various projects at which we've been looking at dry stacking in um, uh, G mining to continue a project. Um, there's nothing beyond you, so you don't have any communities. So we will we have a TSF that's permitted. It was actually permitted at the time of El Dorado. Uh, we're we're bringing it up to the standard of the current legislation, but that's also it shows that you've got to work proactively with administration. You've got to engage with them early enough, show them what you're doing, take their comments, get them to site, get them to see what you're doing, take the comments on board and and kind of loop back in. You have to have the right guys that know the process, that know how to do what's needed by the process, that have the personal contacts so that it's smooth, and and then you have as many chances to get permitted as anywhere else
3: i'd like to stay on the on the theme of your current investments and um there was one i noticed on your your guys website srg mining so guinea and more specifically what i want to ask about is graphite and how you guys look at that so Graphite to me is a sort of market where I think, I mean, like many commodities, there's a lot of sort of power can sit with China. A lot of it comes through China. And of course, you have that risk, like I said, with a bunch of other commodities. But how do you guys, you know, in simple terms, look at the graphite market?
1: Yeah. So obviously, everybody is excited about the cathode material. Um, <laughs> Such as lithium and so on, but but obviously, whatever you do in batteries, the anode is graphite, um, and at the moment it's a blend between synthetic graphite and natural graphite, and you do need fine coarse graphite that has particular um, characteristics, if you like, to be able to do a good battery, and and that supply of graphite is not very extensive, and a lot of it is actually in China, and if you look at the recent dynamics, China has become a net importer of graphite at this stage. So the idea there was to back a good team that showed us a good mine um, to the next stages of their development. It's an unusual investment for us because we did it fairly early stage. However, it's a team that we've known for ages and we're really comfortable with them. Um, And there are guys who are capable of developing the entire chain of going from the mine to the uh, PG. A transformation plant that's capable of getting the capital for it and um, to do it in the right way, if you like. So from our standpoint, what motivated the entry into graphite is it's it's a fairly easy one to understand uh, in terms of a market. Uh, it's not going to be necessarily prone to technical disruptions. Uh, the main use of graphite today for the fines is really the battery metals, so it really played into the theme of um, electric vehicles and energy transition from our standpoint. And um, you know, it's it's one again where there's this strategic angle of bringing production um, and verification into the West. Um, so beyond the mine, we're also working with the team to look at various options for building a plant somewhere between Europe, North Africa. And I would say possibly the U.S., but a lot of people have gone to the U.S. already. And there's quite good reception in the various countries that we're engaging with um, for projects. It's a long ride. So we know that that investment was just at the kind of like very beginning of it. Um, But again, as I said, the mine is a good mine. The the particulars of the graphite would be producing are really the one that people are looking for. Um, It's a mine that will have decent capacity at some point, whether we start with a modular approach or we do it in one shot, we still don't know. Um, But still, um, there is a lot of functionality the deposit. And on the other side, there's a good team that's really capable of navigating the whole supply chain all the way to transformation. And that's really what we'd like to back.
3: Great. And there was another investment as well, Kareem, that I'm keen to get your take on given the sort of portfolio you've got. Elemental Altus. So a royalty business, it doesn't sort of sit in line with the, the other businesses you have. Just reading through their sort of portfolio, they got a bit of a, a range across all different commodities they've got royalties in. What's the yeah. sort of thinking? You've taken quite a, quite a big stake in, in the company. How does a royalty portfolio sit within your sort of broader mining portfolio?
1: I really love the fact that you're bringing it in because it's my baby. This one—that's
2: uh, <laughs> the guy. So,
1: yeah. Um,
2: What's your? Tell us your baby later too, Crowe?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, so that one is an interesting one because we stumbled upon it. Uh, initially, we're interested in kind of like exploration. I don't know if you guys know Peter Spora, which is uh, used to be our. Head of technical and um, our chief geologist. Unfortunately, Peter has passed away, uh, what, two years, three years ago, uh, almost. Um, and Peter was really passionate about the early stage exploration, um, was very passionate about the early stage exploration companies in, in Africa. Um, he knew everything that there was to know about it. And Naguib, again, is a guy that believes in exploration. Uh, he sees exploration as the major tenant of value creation. So there was always this um, desire to get into early stage exploration somehow. But what was not really working for us was to have, um, call it this portfolio management team that was focusing on, call it the corporate finance, looking at bigger opportunities, et cetera. And then on the other side, going running a on the ground exploration program. So we started looking at the options to invest into this uh, field. And eventually we stumbled across uh, Altus Strategies, uh, which had been doing project generation against royalties for about you know, more than a well more into more than a decade. So they had a lot of experience doing this. And we made an investment in them. Uh, Peter was particularly from the front ground, which was Diba in Mali. And we gave them money to drill it, uh, which was a bit unlike what they usually did. Um, And then at some point I got on the board and, you know, it was fairly successful. And then went to Steve and said, Steve, you're working on generating royalties, but you don't have any paying royalties. How about buying them? Uh, And Steve goes, Well, yeah, why not? Would you back this up to do it? And I said, Yeah, uh, that's, you know, it'd be good that you have some stuff in portfolio. So we kind of did what La Mancha does. Um, we dived into the sector, started looking at it, spent quite a bit of time before we made the first investment, which was a royalty into Caserones, which was recently acquired by the Londines. And what we loved about our royalties is we really need the ability to capture top-line revenues and have that exposure, but still be exposed to the upside on the geology and mine life, any mine life extensions. Um, obviously you've got to look at assets that can give, um, you have to see that upside that you don't price in, which we discussed earlier, but you're not exposed to call it the down cycle on, on what it does to your margins. Don't forget if your ASIC is $1, 12, 1300 bucks and gold price goes to hundred bucks, your margins down to hundred bucks on the royalty side, you don't have the same effect. Your revenue is going to come down, but you survive somehow. So. It's really something that we got intrigued and interested by. Um, it's a good diversifier from our standpoint because we're taking mostly equity risk. So, to a certain extent, it was good to have a something that allows us to look at different pieces of capital. So, we work a lot with Elemental on pipeline generation where, let's say, ideas are going to come to us or to them, but it's on the wrong side of the spectrum uh, of the capital structure, we can then pass it on, we can work together. Um, sometimes there will be plays where if somebody is selling, call it equity, but also royalty, we can play on both sides. And if you look at the interesting part is if you look now at the spectrum of who's doing what, increasingly you see people playing across the capital spectrum. And what we didn't necessarily want was to have royalties inside the fund or a royalty fund or something like this. We felt the best way was to do it with a team that we like and we've earned the trust of. And interestingly, we were able to grow the company fairly quickly by doing a combination um, where for once you didn't really have social priming. You didn't have kind of ego stuff in the way. Uh, and it was really nice thing to be able to work with because the sector is quite particular in terms of the motivations for M&A or or lack thereof, if you like. So in that case, there was a very like-minded two sides teams that merged and combined really easily, and they're now working together, and we 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 don't regret that much merger for one minute.
2: Crowe, what's your one, mate? Where's your little soft spot in the Lamarche investment portfolio?
4: I, mine, 100%, Matty, is the existing portfolio companies. I, I, I just really enjoy working with, you know, management teams and, you know, learning about what they're doing and how they're approaching things and, you know, hopefully giving them a few nuggets from my experience as well. So, um, I, I like the portfolio companies. And, but the other thing that's really interesting for me is, you know, working with guys like Kareem on the investment side and understanding it, not just from the from the operators turning big rocks into little rocks but you know all, all of the other things we need to look at around you know what's it what's our exit strategy going to be what's you know what's our development strategy going to be how can we how can we you know on the industrial side that Krim talks about how can we what things can we look at putting together portfolio management that that side of things so um for me it's more about um you yeah, learning and contributing where i can
2: Exit strategy is an interesting one because you know I've listened to other fundy chats and people have some people have said we've gone we know the exit strategy before we even take the investment I guess in this mining environment how does how do you look at the exit strategy from all these positions or does it change all across the world?
1: yeah I mean I think when we go into something We start with the fundamentals. So let's say we're gonna invest into a pre-production construction project in a single asset. Um, What we'll try to think about is once it's built, is it gonna be valuable to someone for strategic? If it's not interesting to someone, what kind of liquidity can we hope for? Um, And and so we're gonna start playing scenarios in terms of where the company could be at in five to 10 years. And do we believe that that asset is going to be really meaningful to someone? Or conversely, is there enough into that group so that it could act as a consolidator? Uh, But but we're fairly agnostic. I mean, for us, consolidation doesn't mean that our name's got to stay on the door. What it really means is that at some point you get into objects that are sizable, in which you could diversify, uh, sorry, divest the stake of a couple of hundred million dollars uh, within six to 12 months to 18 months. You know, that's the other thing about our fund is we, we have terms with our shareholders where we can take our time in building a stake, but we can also take our time exiting. So we do play quite a bit of scenarios. We try to look at one that is somewhere in the middle in terms of how optimistic it is. And we base our base case on that. But we're always going to think about Beyond just putting a multiple on it, you know, what are the scenarios? Where could it be really interesting to someone who would be interested in this asset? And I think the two experiences that bolstered us in terms of being able to find an exit strategy was really evolution mining. Uh, Before I could go to people and tell them, I I have a fund where I can offer you some liquidity within reasonable terms. uh, We went through the experience of getting rid of about a billion five of evolution mining stock uh, within. About two years, where during that time the stock kept outperforming its peers and the index. So we did manage to get out in a safe way, where it was considered for endeavor, for evolution, and where we never really put pressure on the stock unduly during that period of time. Um, we then used the book of tricks in terms of how do we optimize that exit from our standpoint. Um, but that was really one of the things that gave me a lot of confidence to go to Naguib. Naguib, we could build a fund out of what we have so far, because we knew we could go full cycle from finding ideas to working, to putting, you know, closing deals, putting the money in, and then um, adding money as the company grew. And then at some point, we've done our job, the company's kind of like matured and is a big guy now, they don't need us anymore we need liquidity, we can exit. The second one that was pretty interesting was Golden Star, where I think we acquired Golden Star on the theory that we could basically build a multi-asset platform and replicate what we'd done with Endeavor in a different region of Africa. And unfortunately, we didn't necessarily manage to do it. There was a lot of reasons why it didn't happen. I guess it taught us a lot of lessons about diligence early stage, um, COVID came in the way where a lot of the plan was very difficult to execute while in COVID. Um, and then finally, we had to ponder between putting a lot more capital in, restructure in the difficult context of a single asset company, or find the right buyer. What kind of kept us steady all along was really the idea that somebody going to be interested in a deposit that scale. It might have to be somebody with a lot more resources than us, but somebody will be interested in it. And so, we managed to do a good exit for everybody. Um, us, the market. I mean, there is no difference between us and the market. We had nothing else in the company but shares. So you know, um, but but we always had a very steadfast belief that if we couldn't make it, somebody would come and take it at a good price.
0: Karim, I'm pretty curious. Um, you know, you've you made a transition from telecommunications to. Active gold management to minority stakes to battery metals and um and recently royalty royalty dynamics as well. Like I'd just be curious now that you've got a bit more of a broader mandate, um, what how are you thinking about specific commodities? And maybe we can rapid fire, um, shoot through your, your quick views on them. Given um, we might be running pressed for time here, but you know maybe in a sentence, what do you think of gold right now?
1: So the great thing about being from a telecom guy moving to mining, I could kind of squarely say, I don't know and have no clue where gold is going to go to. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> and, 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 and again, you're it doesn't really be matter because, <laughs> again, we're not predicating the returns on the upside. We're really predicating returns on the downside. Now, talking about gold, what's been interesting over the past year is really seeing that kind of like support and res- resistance moving from 1600 to 1900 Um and effectively having around 1900 acting as support and probably some resistance at 2050, which really tells you that investors are getting more optimistic about gold, but uh, prudently in the sense that you still don't know what's gonna happen with rates, still don't know what's gonna happen with recession. So people have been probably increasing their bets on gold as call it a hedge. Um, Now, if you move into a scenario which is more recessionist, then you'll have real rates decreasing even more, and gold will gain traction. And I think we'll see breaking 2100 and gold going up. But, but I don't know what's going to happen, because it would tell you, I know what's going to happen with macro. All I think about is that the bar has moved um, to be closer to 2000 um, on a kind of longer term basis than, than call it two, three years ago. That copper. Uh, Copper, people need copper, people need more copper, there's not enough copper. Um, But copper comes in big chunks. So it's not one that um, we think is going to be doing two, three times. It's one that probably steadily goes up over time um, to somewhere in the 4 to 450 range. Um, Maybe on the downside, if you do have a recession in 2024, 2025, it moves back into the threes, um, but but still there's enough demand to support it at those levels. So what's really important then is what quartiles of, um, you know, what what price quartile you're in when you're producing it.
2: What about what about nickel into and especially in the context of potential bifurcation of the pricing streams with your class one and your class two? Even though class two gets converted to class one these days, anyway. But that's a whole whole another kettle of fish that one.
1: Yeah, so on nickel again, we did the what we do. So when we invested in Horizonte, we looked at much lower nickel price to see if we're still getting our twenty odd percent returns, um, and we're still looking at at it like this. I think again, there is traction for nickel in batteries, um, but then a lot of the nickel is still going into steel, obviously. So and and there is enough. Um, ways to do that bifurcation, whether the mass process or otherwise, um, so that I think nickel is still going to be driven by industrial demand, mainly, um, at least for the next year or two, and then batteries should be taken over, and and that's where really um, you have the upside on the sulfides and uh, on, on concentrate going into sulfides. So, to a certain extent, we're bullish on nickel, otherwise that's not one that we would have invested into, but we're not thinking nickel is gonna be exploding. Um, we, we think obviously what happened last year has got to correct itself. Interestingly, the LME prices were completely unreal because the discounts basically started spreading a lot. Um, and so you could not buy nickel at 100,000. It It was always much lower. And what's happening now is, although the spot price is going down, um, the discounts are going down, and you're going back to a situation called it pre uh, the short crisis where where the market is is kind of like getting back to a real price, uh, which actually makes our life easier uh, in terms of being eva- able to evaluate stuff.
3: Karim, how about lithium?
1: I don't know. Uh, so we've been looking at lithium a lot last year and this year. Obviously, when you see it run, you say, shit, I should have done something. Um, <laughs> you did see it coming down, you say, ha, I, I dodged one. Um, the two parts to it is, yes, the demand is going to be going multifold. But on the other side, there's so much lithium at natural state. There are so many people who are bringing up restart projects or new projects with brines, with hard rock, uh, with clays, et cetera, et cetera, that in my experience, um, you might still have upside, but at some point it's gonna have to correct, and then maybe you regain a normal trend. What we really don't like is volatility. We'd rather see something not double, but kind of stay steady and grow slowly than something that's gonna be exploding. And, and then lastly, if I may, what I really think about is having enough of each of them to hedge myself.
0: Um, and, and, and lastly, um, Karim, just to wrap things up, I'm assuming you're still active, right? So what what are you, um, you know, bite-sized looking for? What sort of opportunities? Are there any, you know, uh, and, and if you're if, if an ASX company is listening to this, how do they know if they're the right fit to have you as a cornerstone investor right now?
2: Okay. Um. And we'll clip the ticket too. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah the the first one is our, our our main priority this year is to put more capital into the new cohort of investments we've done over the past 2 years uh whether to help them um add more exploration find a second asset um do the stage 2 at horizonte um elemental if there was another transaction similar to what we've done or for organic purposes that's my priority that if you like where I told my bosses that this is where I'd like to be rated. Um, That's my first one. The second one, we'd love to be in copper. Um, We feel that we're sort of incomplete on the energy transition spectrum if we're not in copper. The problem we have with copper is obviously projects are much bigger. Um, So the kind of tickets that we do, 75 to 100 million, doesn't get us necessarily what we got into gold. Um, But, there is maybe different avenues for us to get into that kind of twenty percent stakes. Um,
0: I can think of um, one that it, and it might be a bit reminiscent. There's a bite-sized stake you could take in a copper company called AIC Mines, and it's run by Aaron Colloran, who was doing the deal and LaMancha did the deal with evolution. <laughs> so yep. blast from the past, you can get copper exposure on the ASX that way. It's full bite-size That's right, asset. You're right. And, and I
1: think there, I mean, it's it's been an interesting one because when I started with LaMancha it was a bit of a back and forth as, do we want to do anything else than gold? And for the first couple of years, I don't think there was enough institutional comfort internally between the principal who really likes gold, the team, but also our knowledge of the sector. Uh, When we decided we want to be in copper, we started off by spending six months on uh, looking at the sector, um, engaging with companies. We had an incident where there was a company that we're pretty interested in. One of our major banks, had to um, basically monetize a stake that they had lent money against in that company, they didn't pick up the phone and call us. And for me, it was the time where I realized we had to do a lot more outreach and tell people we're interested in copper, we don't just do gold. Um, you know. So, so that's what it takes to actually for us look at new thing. In terms of ticket sizes, our sweet spot is anywhere between 100 and 125 million bucks. Uh, we'd like to get about 20-ish percent out of that. Could be a bit more um, earlier stage, could be a bit less. Uh, we're fairly agnostic. We typically like to get two board seats to that. And we like stories where, again, there's going to be value creation uh, because something is happening. So you're going in pre-construction and you're building the plant and you're building the mine. You go from, what, 0.4, 0.5 to 0.9 times PNAV that's the kind of stuff we like. Uh, We like stories where a team has built something, they operate well, they're looking for the second asset, the third asset, and they need somebody to come and back them up to be able to do that acquisition. Give us a call. Um, Stories where there's a slightly complex capital structure, we're pretty good at that. Um, So that's the kind of stuff. We're very good at working with other people. Um, on G-Mining, we worked with Franco. On uh, Horizonte, we worked a lot with Orion, but we also worked with the bank syndicate alongside the management team. Um, obviously, ACG is really a story about working with Glencore, Stellantis, uh, the SPAC itself, um, and, and being able to make things work. Um, so, so that's the kind of stuff that we're good at.
0: Metals Acquisition Corp is going to have a complicated uh, capital structure there. Maybe you can get involved when they IPO. There's
3: copper exposure.
1: <laughs> Wait for that one for a couple of months, eh? Hey? Yeah.
3: Beautiful. <laughs> really appreciate your time, Graham and Kareem. It's been great.
1: Thanks, guys. I mean, it's really great to be sort of.
3: Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, love it. And I'm sure some of the listeners down here are gonna love hearing about new, you know, new resource funds across the world. So thanks again for your time.
2: Oh, we knew we knew when Crewy was sending us all these praise messages with, that he was just fishing to come onto the podcast. <laughs> it was pretty transparent. What is Money in mind <laughs> debut, he's got it. <laughs> he worked oh, me I was just trying, on, uh, <laughs> just trying to get Karim on, Matty. just trying to get Karim on. <laughs> uh, fantastic guys and look uh, all the best with the punting it's uh, probably not too much punting when you're at your level but I um, hope it all goes well and we'd uh, love to have you on again sometime
1: yeah if you pass by London, just just uh, come see us
2: very much so mate absolutely so. we'll go, I'll come talk Lebanese with you I'll see if I'll, I'll <laughs> yeah. have to all yeah. over it <laughs> cheers guys thanks guys. Cheers, guys thanks very much guys thanks bye bye